This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. By 1995, Eldon Kidd found himself staring down a harsh 10-year sentence in one of Mexico's most dangerous and disordered prisons. After a tumultuous start, he found his footing, learning to endure the tough conditions. But as he would record in hundreds of handwritten journal entries, life behind bars was still an unpredictable series of extremes. First day of spring. There was no school today, but there were races and basketball games. Had to slap a guy that was making fun of me. He shut up quick. The water main broke and flooded everything. I spread soap and bleach around to kill the critters and disease. During the mop-up, it turned into a water fight. I laughed for the first time in a while and felt almost happy. During the festivities of the day, there was a murder. The guards were a little on edge. The victim was beaten and drowned in a shallow pond. Did a few pull-ups and bar dips and ran for about 20 minutes. Started exercising a little with a 30-pound piece of concrete wrapped in a sack. The guards will take it in the next shakedown. Felt a deep sadness today that colored everything blue. Gotta hang on and stop thinking about the easy way out. Putting it all down on paper helped Eldon to survive. And as the only gringo in Almoloya de Juarez, Eldon needed all the help he could get, especially once he caught the attention of the prison's director. He was formerly a federale, and he had no knowledge of the penal system. And he was also a paranoid psychopath. Even the other guards didn't like this man. He was truly an evil person. This is American Coyote. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafania. In our sixth episode, Eldon must fight for his life, literally, as he prays for his freedom. The prison director was a short, dark, evil man who had just been instated as the prison director when I arrived and received the appointment probably through a friend or some associate. That's how everything works there. He was a very dangerous person. He would often beat prisoners up for very small infractions and just deny the visit of family members or anything that he could to, to be cruel. It should come as no surprise that Eldon would catch the prison director's attention. Not only did he stand out from the other prisoners based on appearance alone, but Eldon's reputation once again preceded him. He got the idea from watching reruns of the American Gladiator program that I would be maybe a moneymaker for him 
as far as bringing in people from the outside to box. And his whole purpose was to make bets with the guards and other prison officials to make some money. Boxing inside Almoloya de Juarez was considered entertainment, a way for prisoners, guards, and the other personnel to pass the time. But it was also a way to squeeze some money out of the prison and all its unpaid labor. It was Elton's size that made him the ideal prison yard boxer in the eyes of the prison director. But as it turned out, Elton had a bit more experience with the sport than even the prison director knew. I had some very mediocre and brief boxing training in high school and just out of high school, hoping to um, possibly make that a career. But I lost my first six fights straight and decided that was not quite for me. There's a beautiful high mountain town called Uruapan in Michoacan. And I was invited to participate in a couple of prize fights there. Sometimes the Mexican people get tired of betting on chickens and want to bet on people. And it's uh, pretty much the same scenario in the same crowd that attend the matches. I didn't really know who my opponent would be, but they just liked the idea that a white guy would be fighting with a Mexican guy, somewhat of an exotic. And it didn't really matter if I won or lost, I would get a pretty decent sum of money. But the people who invited me to participate were the same people that I was hauling the merchandise down from the U.S. into Mexico for them to sell at a profit. Regal, the same man who had invited Eldon to box in the mountains of Mexico back in 1993, was also the man who had handed Eldon the keys to an RV filled with marijuana. Being caught with that RV had landed Eldon in Almoloya de Juarez, where he would now, once again, be forced to box. And his friend, Armando Flores, was there to witness his first fight. I arrived one day to visit him on a Sunday afternoon, and Eldon did not come out. I could see that in the middle of the courtyard where the relatives met with the prisoners, a ring was set up. I asked myself, who is going to fight? Then I discovered that above the ring, Eldon was sitting shirtless, wearing a pair of poorly tied gloves. Sunday was the day of uh, La Visita. That's when people would come and have their family members bring food, sit around on blankets, and just have a kind of a day of it. And they had all through the lightweight, all the way up to the heavyweight. So mine was, of course, the most interesting, you know, heavyweight, this is a big deal. And I got a t-shirt and kind of painted it out that said Almaloya. So I was their dog in the fight. Despite Eldon's best efforts to represent his fellow prisoners, his country of origin and appearance made him the obvious villain. And Armando knew it. I immediately went up to the ring to the corner where Eldon was. I asked him, what was he doing there? To which he answered that they were forcing him to box. 
that if he did not do so, they would put some gays in his cell and that he or they would be forced to rape, as they are told in the slums, and that obviously he did not want that to happen. Armando tried to convince Eldon it was a bad idea, but by that time, it was too late. It was time to fight. I never thought there was a Mexican of Eldon's size, but there was. A Yaqui Indian from Sonora of the same size and complexion, perhaps a little heavier at that time. The blows flew out of Eldon's arms, and he also received as many. It was like seeing two bulls charge. The fight occurred between wild shouts of my countrymen throwing all kinds of things. I was second in motivating him not to give up. For all my countrymen, I was a traitor. Finally, after five rounds, the Yaki began to lose strength. And with a hook to the liver, he fell. Immediately, something unexpected happened for all of us present. Eldon, instead of returning to his corner as indicated by boxing protocols, ran to get up and make sure that his opponent was fine. Everyone was perplexed by such action. I could not contain my tears. I don't know if it was because of the tension I experienced, because of the victory achieved, or because of the kind action of my brother. After the fight, we were congratulated by all his prison companions, now identifying with the gringo. He's not so bad, they said. After his performance in the first fight, Eldon became a regular boxer at the prison, taking on opponent after opponent brought in from the outside. He also became a surefire way for the prison director to make money on the side. And that meant Eldon was forced to participate in some of the seedier elements of the underground sport. The fights were rigged. I had a fight approximately every two weeks. If I was to win a fight, I would be fitted with gloves that were very thin. And I also had a lead roll in my hand so that I could hit hard. Now, that gave me a tremendous advantage over anybody that I had to box. If I was to lose, of course, that was no problem. I just had to take a few punches and fall down. All in all, it helped to make me a more popular person, and a lot of the racism ceased at that point, especially when they saw that I was capable of defending myself. And they all love any kind of blood sport, so they would have their own boxing matches with and without gloves that would precede mine. It was in these preceding matches, both in the ring and in the audience, where the extreme violence occurred. In addition to entertainment, these gatherings were also used by prisoners as venues for infighting and retaliation. A brutal reminder for Eldon of what he'd have to endure for the next decade. There was a guy that they called Pitufo, which means the Smurf. And he was a tiny guy, and he came to the visit every week with his family. And there was a big guy they called Godzilla, 
really big kind of African-Mexican mix, scary guy. And he kept messing around with the family, messing around with the family. And one day Pitufo took a pencil and killed Godzilla. He studied where to stick that pencil into his neck. And I was working at the hospital. And here he comes in, they're carrying, they don't have a stretcher, they're just carrying him limb by limb, put him on the table. He was, he was dead in 10 seconds after they got him to the, to the table. Right in the neck, right in the neck. So I learned a lesson. There's really no tough guys. There's guys with tattoos, there's guys with muscles, but there are no tough guys. There's just a person with a pencil and a person with a reason and another guy who's not looking the right way. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success, and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs, soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. Because of my participation in boxing, I was allowed some benefits, like I had a little bit better food. I would occasionally have some fruit, like papaya uh, and watermelon. And I was treated with a little bit more respect. As the prison director won more and more money from the rigged fights, Eldon received more and more perks. His cell was cleaned and painted white. He was given a desk, allowing him to write more easily. Of course, Eldon's spruced-up boxer stable also served another purpose for the prison. Whenever the derechos humanos, human rights, came, they would kick me out of the cell, and they would have a couple of Mexican guys there reading books. They just had to make sure that they weren't upside down. So this is the picture that we would take, and this was the prison. But despite these small, quality-of-life benefits, the forced boxing matches were having a massive physical and emotional toll on Eldon, only intensifying his misery in prison. July 30th, 
1996. At 11.45, they came and pressured me into another boxing match. The guards said that they would add creeps to my cell if I declined the offer. There was a new guy transferred from a Mexico City jail. Big, ugly, tattooed, lots of scars. When they were wrapping my hands in gauze before putting the gloves on, I felt my hands tremble and felt kind of sick. Three rounds, three minutes, didn't want to get hurt. The fight only went two rounds. All the visitors came and cheered for the other guy. Made me feel an outcast. I knocked him down six times in the first round. He was tough and kept getting up. My heart was pounding. I was really tired. The second round, the guy locked my arm under his so I couldn't get free. I reached down, grabbed his leg, and flipped him on his back. When he landed, he faked that his back was hurt and didn't get up. I was booed, but I won. And still, the fighting went on and on. The prison director would say, this is the week that you win, because he would make side bets. So the prison doctor would doctor the water of the person that was to fight me, chlorohydrate. Then he's, they would say, I feel sick, I don't want to box. You're afraid of the gringo. No, I'm not, but they'd be wobbly, so it was quite easy to win, too. But one time, Eldon refused to fight when he found out who his opponent would be. I never boxed another prisoner. Uh, they tried to get me to box one guy there. I refused, and I was put in what's called the hole, which is really a hole. Solitary confinement in Mexico consisted of an actual hole in the ground with some metal covering the top. And the bottom had a mixture of urine and feces in it that was pretty deep, so you couldn't ever really lay down or sit down. And you have to sleep on your knees and your elbows because there's about this much water in the bottom. So after two nights of that, you know, you're, you're ready to do whatever they say. But I didn't do it because I did not want to have it be me against the prisoners. I didn't want to fight him. I wasn't afraid, but I didn't want to fight him. Due to Eldon's refusal to fight fellow prisoners, the abuse from the prison director intensified, further harming his physical and emotional health. Armando began to notice this decline on his weekly visits to Eldon and decided he needed to do something even if it meant putting himself at risk. I saw that the situation was very difficult for Eldon, and considering that the court's ruling were against him, I decided to speak to the United States Embassy, explaining that one of their citizens was in serious trouble in the Almologita prison. I said it was urgent that they attend to him since his life was in danger. They asked me to write a testimonial describing everything that was happening and if it was necessary to formally accuse the director of the prison to which I agreed and wrote that document. I had several interviews with the embassy staff. I provided all my details in that document, my address and work details. I also had several witnesses sign the document. 
The accusation against the director of the prison was serious, and they told me he was possibly going to retaliate. And yes, on two occasions, I could see through my rear view mirror that two vehicles were following me very closely, to which I immediately took action on the matter. I contacted my contact at the embassy, and to my surprise, they sent a patrol from the United States Embassy to my home. Armando's written statements to the United States Embassy, combined with the actions Janice and other family and friends were already taking, suddenly brought more attention to Eldon's case. And with this attention came action from the prison's director. I was picked up, and I thought actually that maybe I was going to be taken somewhere and shot. I was put in a car, and I was between two guys with weapons, and I was thinking, well, I think I should jump out and just, you know, at least take my chances. But they could see that I was kind of tense and nervous, and they kept saying, relax, relax, you're really going to go back to the U.S. Because I became eligible for what is called a treaty transfer or prisoner exchange. That transfer was followed by a visit from someone from the consulate that said that that could happen. According to the consulate, Eldon was being transferred back to the United States, which was truly fantastic news for him. However, he was still in Mexico at that moment, where anything could happen. Eldon would detail the long, harrowing journey back to America in a letter he wrote during the four-day process. February 24th, 1996. On February 21st, they called me to the director's office to begin the transfer process. The ride to Mexico City was about an hour. The night was cold and confusing. The dungeon-like cell was in the basement of a police station. A water leak made the cement floor a cold and depressing place to sleep. How I wished for my blanket. At 5 a.m., they came for me again. By now, my bag was a little lighter with less money to carry around, thanks to the accommodating guards. I was whisked off to a small airport and put into a 20-seater plane. We flew to prisons in Zacatecas, San Luis Potosí, and Matamoros. Landing in Monterrey was a media event. We all looked pretty bad after two nights of very little sleep. Loaded in an armored bus, we were hauled to the huge prison here in Monterrey. The food is excellent. I've had my first shower in a long time. Meanwhile, I'm healthy, hopeful, and grateful for good friends and family who have sustained and supported me through this dark chapter of my life. Love, Eldon. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. 
Thanks to two years of tireless work by Eldon's wife, Janice, his friends and family, and the letters Armando Flores wrote to the United States Embassy, Eldon qualified for a treaty transfer in 1996. For those who have never been sentenced to prison in a foreign country, a treaty transfer is an agreement the United States has with numerous countries around the world, allowing them to transfer certain imprisoned citizens back to the United States to serve out the rest of their sentence on American soil. Because the United States sends millions of dollars to Mexico, they give them equipment and helicopters and so forth for the fight against drugs, they need to bring back their trophy people. You're going to be sent back to the United States as a proof that they're doing their job. And they historically send approximately seven to 10 people every two months from Mexico to the United States, which is uh, in opposition to the three to 500 that we send there's a lot of diplomatic and judicial gray area here. In Eldon's case, for example, he was subject to the corrupt Mexican judicial system, a far cry from the fair trial by a jury of peers he would have received in the United States. This means his 10-year sentence didn't necessarily apply on American soil. It also didn't mean he was free to go once he arrived stateside they would recompute my sentence according to the laws of the United States, and I would serve the remainder of my time there. You have no opportunity to litigate or prove your case. You just go, you sign a paper saying, yes, I accept the Mexican sentence, and I want to be transferred. At that point, they take your record and just give you whatever sentence that you would have gotten if the crime would have been committed in the United States. And that, for me, added up to another 11 months in prison. Eldon was now back on American soil, transferred to the Latuna Federal Correctional Institute located just north of El Paso, Texas. However, Two years surviving in one of Mexico's harshest prisons takes its toll on a man's psyche. It was a shock to me to be received the way I was in the United States. I thought that I would somehow receive justice upon arrival, but it was a very traumatic experience in itself. For the first two weeks that I was in Latuna prison, I could barely function. I was just so much in shock. The idea that I was, yes, in the United States, but still not free to move about or see my family. And in many ways, it was harsher treatment in the United States than it was in Mexico as far as mind games and control. And the thing that was very oppressive was you were only allowed to move from one area to the next at 10 minutes before the hour a bell would ring, everyone would run and scurry like rats from the library to the rec yard or from the school to the chow hall. And any other time, you were written up and put into solitary confinement. Latuna Prison is 85% illegal Hispanic aliens. So I really felt in many ways that I had never left Mexico. 
To Eldon's family, however, it was completely different. Dad was home. Almost. Eldon's daughter, Eileen, remembers the family visiting him at Latuna. To get into the prison was hard. They put you through detectors and um, all the children had come. My mother had come. He was thinner. He, he seemed tired. He seemed a little broken behind his eyes, but he was still able to put on a very strong face, a happy face, and um, assume the role of a father for that two hours that we were with him. I remember there being a snack machine, and we had coins upon coins. We could get anything we wanted from the vending machine. And, and I remember seeing other families at other tables and feeling very sorry for them, wondering what their story was and how did they come to be here and was their dad ever going to come home? Because mine was. He took us all aside individually and talked to us about our lives and our emotions and how we were doing, when really it should have been the other way around. He made little goals with us, little um, promises. I remember he promised my little baby sister that he'd take her to Disneyland when he got out. And I was very jealous about that. My promise from him to me was that he wanted to take me dancing when he got out. That was what I was to look forward to. But it never happened. So I was a little sad about that. But I know that once he got back, life happened and I, f I forgive him. Our whole life together is a, um, a dance, in my opinion. Just six months later, Eldon would return home for the first time in nearly three years. Oh, it was, it was just elation. It was wonderful to come home. There's no way that I can ever take a shower without thinking, I didn't have a shower for two years. Hot water pouring on your body, a salad bar. I don't, I don't ever, when I ate the sandwich, I think, thank God for this sandwich, even though I don't know where God is, but... Thank God for my sandwich, and I'm grateful for everything that I have. And the family was just as excited. Eldon's daughter, Tammy, remembers those first moments after Eldon walked in the door. I just remember having us all gathered around, and he was in, like, the red chair. And it was, like, our main chair. And we were all just looking at him. Just, you're home. You're here. Can you believe it? You're here. And... We were all just kind of waiting to see what he would say. I mean, kind of a lot of, lot of pressure off for a guy to have all his kids just staring at him. But I think he asked if we have ice cream, and we were all excited, like, you know, we have ice cream. Let's have, let's have some ice cream. It's a party. He had an ankle bracelet of some sorts on, but it was the first time he was able to come and cross the threshold. I remember him going around and flushing toilets because he hadn't heard that sound in so long. Eileen also vividly remembers a moment from that first evening of her father's return. I remember all of us congregating up in my brother Nathan's bedroom, and this, a song came on, and 
he danced with my mother to this song called Return to Innocence. And it was uh, a movie, it was a dream to see them both close, him holding her hand over his heart and rocking and smiling. And his eyes were closed and her eyes were closed. And it was beautiful. Eldon had been through hell and survived. He was now back with his loving family in America, ready to embrace a fresh start, a new beginning. So why would he risk everything to return to life as a coyote? That's, that's the million-dollar question. Everybody would just think, why? You've been through so much. You've already been to jail. You've, you've cheated death multiple times. Why would you then assume the risk and responsibility of that, that uh, career path? Now it's 1997. Lots has changed. It's not 250 bucks anymore. It's 850 bucks. Still doable, still possible. And so I start thinking, how can I do this? That's next time on American Coyote. American Coyote is created, written, and produced by Eli Chorus and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. And produced by Alvin Cowan. Original music for the series is composed by Joshua Klebe. Assistant editing by Max Drankpole. Sound recording by Nick Sinakis and Matt Stouter. Additional voice recording by Carlos Linares. Sound editing by Joshua Schaefer and Nick Sinakis. Sound design and sound mixing by Craig Platty. Poster design and graphics by Jeff Quinn. Production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC and Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. Host record by Deborah Reeves and Signature Sound in San Diego, California. Please subscribe download and share these episodes and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. Thanks again for listening.